Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and in a moment, you're going to hear Dr. Susanna Greer speaking with three guests from Hillman Cancer Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Wonderfully collaborative environment where they are really um, approaching cancer research from so many different angles. So today, we you know we we spoke with somebody focused on DNA repair, somebody looking at the role of the Epstein-Barr virus in cancer, and somebody looking at the role of nerves in cancer growth. So let's take this one at a time. We've got Dr. Yuri Bunimovich. He's assistant professor in the Department of Dermatology and member of the Cancer Immunology and Immunotherapy Program at Hellman Cancer Center. Really cool research on the role of nerves in melanoma growth. Dr. Sarah Hengel. She is an American Cancer Society postdoctoral fellow at the Hillman Cancer Center in the Department of Pharmacology and Chemical Biology in the Kara Bernstein Lab. You know, her, her ACS grant is focused on DNA damage and repair, and she talks at length about how important it is to understand the different mutations that she's studying and how they could lead to more personalized therapies. And Last, definitely not least, Dr. Kathy Scher. She's Assistant Professor of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. She's an investigator in cancer virology program at the Hillman Cancer Center. Epstein-Barr virus, she tells us all about it. Fascinating look at the role of viruses in cancer. And with that, let's get into it. This is Dr. Susanna Greer and our three guests from the University of Pittsburgh. Good morning. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. We have with us today three fantastic researchers from the Hillman Cancer Center at the University of Pittsburgh. So, Kathy, you are joining us from the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, I'm Kathy Scher. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. And Sarah, you come to us from the Department of Pharmacology and Chemical Biology. Good morning. Good morning. It's so nice to be with you. Good morning, Sarah. It's nice to be with you as well. And last but not least, we have Yuri, who is joining us from the Department of Dermatology. Good morning, Yuri. Good morning. All right. Fantastic. Kathy, I think I'll start with you. So I'm going to ask each of you similar questions so that we can all get to know you, our audience can get to know what you've been up to and hear your thoughts on the big challenges in cancer that you are working to solve in your research. So Kathy, help us understand, scientists approach enormous challenges in cancer. So what is it? What is it for your lab? What's the big picture problem that your research is trying to solve? So as you said, cancer is a very, very large problem, but my involvement as a molecular virologist is to understand how viruses um, can be causal or contribute to some human cancers. And the big picture for my lab is we focus on uh, head and neck cancer called nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Um, this is attributed to the infection of Epstein-Barr virus. So um, EBV or Epstein-Barr virus is extremely common. More than 95% of adults are chronically infected with it and they continue to transmit this virus. But sometimes this virus can turn bad. And so uh, my main interest is to understand how chronic infections, otherwise normally asymptomatic, 
can turn bad and result in cancer. Well, all right, you laid out a huge challenge. So, Sarah, what are you thinking about? What is a huge challenge in your field that you think about all the time? So in our field, we are really focused on understanding a subset of breast and ovarian cancers because um, a subset of these cancers have abnormalities in a group of proteins called the RAD51 paralogs. And while these proteins were identified nearly 30 years ago, we are just beginning to understand what these proteins do and how mutations can really affect uh, cancer patients. So these RAD51 paralogs, they're now included in cancer screening panels, but we're still just really in our infancy in understanding what these proteins do normally. So it's really hard for us to understand what uh, these mutations could be doing in cancer. So we're focusing on this problem. Well, that's pretty cool, Sarah. So help me understand before we move on one thing. What do you mean by sure. paralogs? So this is, so it's this really fascinating group of proteins. They are all kind of similar to the central protein that does the job in helping uh, templated DNA repair. So that's just like a fancy way of saying like, we're going to copy and repair our DNA using using an, uh, a little bit of information. And so these RAD51 paralogs all kind of are similar, but they have distinct flavors or personality profiles that are slightly different and that make them unique. And we're trying to understand um, what they do and how they do it. Oh, that's really cool. So it sounds like you have an idea of what these RAD51 proteins do, but if you don't really know what they do in normal cells, it's awfully hard to know what they do in cancer cells. Is that reasonable? Oh, precisely. That's exactly uh, that's exactly how we think about it. All right. Fantastic. All right, Yuri, you're up. Well, first of all, thanks again for giving us the opportunity to share our research. I think it's really great. Uh, so uh, my research uh, has to do with uh, this concept of tumor microenvironment. So it actually turns out that cancer cells by themselves uh, cannot really um, turn into tumors. They need some outside help. And what happens is that there is a concept called microenvironment, tumor microenvironment that is created around the cancer cells that is composed of many other cells that is instrumental in promoting the cancer progression. So there are many it's like a hodgepodge of different cells in there. So uh, blood vessels, uh, fibroblasts, a lot of immune cells. Um, everyone's sort of running around and doing something pro or against cancer. And discovery of some of these elements led to actual breakthroughs in the last decade for cancer research. So it turns out that nerves are also part of this ensemble of microenvironment, but um, we really don't know what the nerves are doing there. Um, do they support cancer progression? Do they uh, inhibit cancer progression? So what my lab is doing, so I'm a dermatologist as well, clinician dermatologist, so I actually study primarily skin cancer, melanoma primarily, um, 
but it is, uh, you know, our results, uh, our findings are expandable to, it's a fundamental findings that are expandable to other types of cancer. So uh, we are studying what the nerves are doing, why they're there, um, and how we can actually target them in order to uh, prevent uh, their influence on the melanoma and prevent melanoma progression. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I have a quick follow-up question. I'm wondering, could could we think about the tumor microenvironment? I mean, one of the things that you said that I really liked is that cancer cells need help. So could you, and that there's a lot more than just, I mean, I think one of the things we sometimes think about is just like this tumor is just kind of growing and doing its own thing. And that's, you laid out a nice case that that's not what's happening. There's lots going on. Could we think about it like a little city where there are all these different things happening and they're all kind of interrelated and you're trying to figure out how a specific part of that city is related and maybe helping the the cancer cells so maybe like i don't know your your tumor might be a i don't know like the something bad like a i don't know let's let's a liquor store which we could argue pro and cons of the liquor store and the nerves might be the road like a road that's going to the liquor store. So you're trying to figure out like why it's there and what's happening. Is that at all a reasonable analogy? Yeah, so if you want to think about it, maybe like uh, as a city, uh, you know, city in order to expand, what does it need? It needs roads, right? Uh, so for example, uh, uh, give you an analogy, tumor, cancer, attract a growth of uh, blood vessels in order to give them, you know, feed the cancer more nutrients, um, and so forth. So you can think of that as sort of road. So it actually based, you know, cancers, tumors tend to be pretty smart and they, um, they uh, try to uh, make an environment around them as supportive to their uh, eventual progression as they can. Uh, the other example is uh, fighting the immune system. So we know immune system is always surveilling, always trying to uh, kill cancer, essentially. So cancer, uh, in its microenvironment, has devised ways to attract certain immune cells that actually prevent that, that actually keep the uh, immune response to cancer down. So, and we're looking now at what the nerves are doing. Okay, fair. So how is the tumor using the city, the microenvironment around them? Nice. All right. Kathy, let's pivot back to you. So you you helped us to understand that in your research, you're really thinking a lot about how viruses, which is so cool, contribute to cancer. And you think a lot about head and neck cancer. And the thing that I wanted to remind our audience of is that, oh my gosh, you study a cancer, or rather you study a virus that's... Um, really common, EBV, and one of the things you think about is that that this is actually a, you know, a, a challenge because it's a chronic, so this is something that you, you said it's sometimes bad and sometimes not bad, so maybe you could share with us an, a recent advance that your field has made, and, and, and maybe the, the title bad isn't isn't great, but we're thinking in the context of cancer here, right? How, how yeah. in some cases, and in a very minority of cases, 
does EBV, which the vast majority of us actually has, how does it contribute to, um, in the very minority of cases, to cancer? So maybe you could talk to us about an advance in this space. Sure. So um, you're right. The utility, the application of the word bad is very broad. And I would clarify that when I mean bad, I mean, how can something that normally exists in your body and um, infects your cells without any signs of disease, what's called asymptomatic, end up causing cancer. And so first I have to explain that um, Epstein-Barr virus infection infects mainly two types of cells, your blood cells called B cells, as well as um, epithelial cells that line your oral pharynx so your mouth and your airway. Now with the head and neck cancer I studied called NPC or nasopharyngeal carcinoma, there are several risk factors that we know of, but EBV infection turns out to be unanimously associated, almost unanimously associated with the occurrence of nasopharyngeal carcinoma. That's strong evidence that it isn't a passenger infection that it isn't there just because it happens to be, but that it was there from the very beginning. We, so in terms of the recent advance, we've known for some time that the um, original idea that viruses can cause human cancers originated from studies in the EBV and its association to nasopharyngeal carcinoma. It turns out that by essentially doing a special assay that is a molecular barcode of the virus, we can deduce that the tumor cell that grows out from an original transformed or cancerous cell comes from one, what's called a molecular clone of the virus. That means the virus was there at the inception when the cell turned into a cancer cell. So the recent advance since that knowledge is to be able to better understand well, under what circumstance does that cancer cell emerge? And we know uh, several things like um, from epigenetics, uh, 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 epidemiology studies, we know that there's a health disparity. So um, there's a huge hotspot concentration of nasopharyngeal carcinoma where, you know, 25 to 35 um, persons per 100,000 in certain populations like Southeast Asians and the Alaskan Inuits have um, uh, incidence of nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So it's very, very concentrated in those regions of the world. And so we think that host genetics plays an important part in that. But since um, the recent sort of uh, emergence of widespread functional genomics, that just means um, ways in which we can study the genetic content uh, or identity of either the host or the virus, and then try to figure out what these these genetic element changes mean in a in a functional manner. It turns out that there are different EBV genetic variants that circulate in different populations as well. So I think an important recent advance is to be able to do what's called functional mapping studies in order to elucidate what these different strains of um, EBV circulating in different populations uh, mean in terms of cancer risk. And so that's one aspect that we study um, with the funding from the ACS. 
Oh, that's really interesting. So it, it seems like what the initial observation, which is super cool, is that a long time ago, we'll just say. More than 50 years ago. <laughs> a little bit more than 50 years. We've, this is a pretty young field in the sense that, you know, we've only accepted this concept 50 years ago. Right. It, it, but it's still just amazing that we had this observation that that we had a tumor cell and that one tumor cell was virally infected and it was that viral infection that that caused the initiation of that normal cell to begin the path to begin the journey of becoming a cancer right so that's amazing first of all so we began to accept that as a field and then now the field begins to ask tons of questions about, well, what next? What happens next? And the thing that you've now shared with us is that there's that's not equal among everybody, right? If you took 100 people from all over the world, there are chances of that happening. So you said most of us have EBV, but the mm -hmm. chances of us having EBV and also having cancer is really low but if you live in certain parts of the world it's actually quite high and what you shared with us is that that means that there's some role for genetics so the advance that you shared is that it looks like that one way that you have begun to figure out is that there the EBV isn't all the same in everybody that they're different kinds maybe different types, yeah. you call them variants of EBV yeah. in different population. And the way that you figure that out is by doing what you call functional mapping and being able to pair these different population groups who unfortunately have a higher risk for different types of cancer with these different types of EBV. And now you're going to be asking, what does that mean? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very well put. Um, viruses are, you know, very complicated things that have been successful in transmission, at least for Epstein-Barr virus. And I don't necessarily think that cancer is the goal for the virus. It's almost a byproduct of its natural pathogenesis path, as it were. You know, viruses are concerned about replicating itself and having a viable mechanism to transmit itself. And for chronic infections that are, quote unquote, successful in the sense that it exists so ubiquitously throughout our population, um, is, is designed in such a way that it has to, you know, avoid the immune system and still replicate at low levels to be able to transmit between individuals and between different sites in the body. And so... Um, Sometimes, you know, it, it, you know, can't, therefore, the founding principle is we think with chronic infections, um, it, cancer isn't the goal for the virus, but sometimes there must be something that the virus is doing in the odd cell uh, in the right individual, paired individual, that it can end up causing cancer. And that's essentially what we're trying to understand why some individuals and some viruses are more susceptible to causing cancer. Kathy, I was wondering if I could ask you a question. I'm wondering if you think that it's not only the genetics that play a role, but also maybe the environment 
Yeah, that's another um, attributed factor and historical epidemiology studies, so population um, statistical analysis, that's what epidemiology is, studying population variation, uh, has argued that environmental exposure to certain carcinogens, so for example, in Alaskan Inuits and Southeast Asians, they consume more um, salty fish and preserved uh, fishy products, which, which have this um, carcinogen called nitrosamines. However, I, I failed to see good experimental evidence to demonstrate that to be true. So that, 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 that question, in my mind, has yet to be demonstrated experimentally. Um, but population studies do suggest that dietary consumption of carcinogens may uh, contribute. So the culminating evidence that we're ultimately working on is it turns out the DNA in the host of the infected cell, so your own body's cellular DNA, is mutated in such a fashion that is um, there aren't specific hotspots. Some cancers have specific hotspot mutations, and you know definitively that's the reason that cancer emerged. But with these virally associated cancers, in particular EBV in nasopharyngeal carcinoma, the genetic content is highly variable but also very, very diversely mutated. So we think a, 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 a multitude of factors that ultimately lead to what's called genomic instability um, contributes to cancer risk because of a, a culmination of mutations. Yeah, it's so complicated and so fascinating. So we've got all these things going on around EBV. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass to you, Sarah, and say that you're kind of in a similar boat, right? I mean, you study a different disease. You study breast and ovarian cancer, but you shared with us that you're studying a group of proteins that you you know are a problem, right? You know that that there are mutations in these proteins that affect patients, that they play roles in kind of this fundamental process that cancer cells undergo, which is dividing. But one of the challenges that you have is that you don't really know what these proteins do in normal cells. So help us understand what's happening in your field. Maybe share a big advance or an advance. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no. So what we're really working on understanding is um, how these proteins regularly function. And also, we in our lab, we have one of the largest um, set of analyses of these mutations in the RAD51 paralogs. So why that matters is because we all have different genetic makeups and uh, different individuals um, respond differently to, di to different types of cancer therapeutics. So, so one person who has one mutation um, may respond differently than someone with another mutation. And what's really awesome is that we can see this in the lab. These mutations respond differently to different chemotherapeutics and cancer treatments. Um, and so, you know, we are just really working hard to understand how these differential therapies can be, can be combined and used so that we can really treat individuals for their genetic makeup, 
which I think it for, is really satisfying because, you know, um, because every individual matters. Absolutely. So help us understand if, if we've got this straight. So with the ROD51 protein, kind of the goal is to take our observation that there are mutations within this family of proteins within cancer patients. So knowing this, could we apply the this understanding to using different targeted drugs to, to think about therapeutic applications, knowing that there are going to be all kinds of different impacts that these mutations, without maybe understanding exactly what these mutations do, we can still take this information and move forward. Yes, that is exactly right. So, and that's the goal of the lab. Because right now, when you are in the clinic and you um, submit your DNA and they look at what mutations you have in these RAD51 paralogs, they are listed as variants of unknown significance. And that's because our field is just so new and we're just, just at the beginning of understanding what these genes do. So the goal of our program is to figure out what these genes do, what, how the mutations impact their function so that we can reclassify these, classify these variants so that when people go into the clinic, then they will, they will know what these mutations mean and how they can um, treat these patients accordingly. Because right now it, we're just really limited and we don't have all the information. So that's what we're trying to get towards. So it sounds like the big advance is our understanding that even though we may not know the functionality of some of these mutations, we know that there are drugs that we can use to target them. And so we're missing, while we're missing a piece, the mid, a middle piece of information, we, we do have an endpoint or we have therapeutics that we are now understanding we can apply. And I, this, this term variants of unknown significance, right? We want to turn them into variants of of known significance. Known significance. Yes, exactly. So interesting. Okay. All right, Yuri, the last thing you shared with us is that you're studying the tumor microenvironment and you explained to us that it's this busy place and that nerves are, are all in this tumor microenvironment and that you don't really know what the nerves are doing. So maybe share what's What's something big that's happened in your field recently to help you understand more about the involvement of nerves? Uh, yeah, so as I mentioned, um, this is a fairly new um, area of research uh, where we're starting to recognize that uh, nerves are not just bystanders. They actually um, promote um, cancer tumor progression. So uh, in the area, there's been a, a belief for a long time that uh, tumors attract nerves into them, uh, kind of um, promote them to grow into the tumors. And the belief was that, well, we see that the tumor cells, can, cancer cells can spread along nerves, so they need them for something inside the, the tumor. So, uh, well, so it turns out actually that may not be the whole picture. So, um, as I said, we are looking uh, at melanoma. And in melanoma, it seems to be a, a different picture that's emerging. What we found recently through uh, looking at um, a lot of different um, 
uh, melanoma uh, samples from patients uh, and confirming with uh, mouse models is that if you look inside the melanoma, you will be hard-pressed to find intact nerves. So then we asked, well, why would that be? Um, so we looked at the periphery of the melanoma, at the uh, tissue, at the, at the just kind of the leading edges of the invasion of the tumor, and we looked there, and it, we found plenty of nerves in those areas. And then we started to look deeper and see, well, what uh, are those nerves normal or not? And it turns out that those nerves are not normal, and uh, they look um, they look injured. So just to give you kind of an example, peripheral nerves are very important for tissue regeneration. So let's say if you cut a peripheral nerve, let's say in the skin, it will regenerate, unlike the nerves of the central nervous system, your brain or the spinal cord. So peripheral nerves regenerate. So the nerves that we found at the periphery of melanoma exhibited the same characteristics of actively regenerating nerves. Uh, and uh, so that was one very interesting finding. And the importance of this is when the nerve regenerates, it also creates a microenvironment around it, attracting different types of cells and uh, reorganizing the tissue around it. And all those changes are actually uh, supporting tumor progression. So, for example, um, uh, you know, as I said, microenvironment is a busy place, but you can divide the cells that go into it into sort of, uh, are you playing for the tumor team? Are you playing against the tumor team? Are you promoting tumor or are you trying to kill the tumor? So, one very important type of cells that um, play against the tumor are T cells. These are professional cells that, uh, cytotoxic T cells that are there to uh, kill the tumor. And a lot of these uh, revolutionary, uh, you know, breakthroughs in immunotherapy actually are designed to boost the activity of those cells. Well, there also are cells that are playing on the other team, immune cells, that are called immunosuppressive cells, uh, such as regulatory T cells, uh, myeloid-derived suppressor cells. These are all cells that actually cause immunosuppression. They try to um, essentially dumb down the um, anti-tumor immune response. And so, a uh, very important characteristic of, of nerve regeneration is that during nerve regeneration, the nerves create an immunosuppressive environment around them. And so, uh, what it then leads to is that melanoma, as it invades further and further into the skin, it injures the nerves, and it causes the nerves to do what they do normally designed to do, is to start regenerating. And as they start regenerating, they create an immunosuppressive environment around the melanoma that protects the melanoma from the immune response of, that the body is trying to generate against it. So, it's a combination of how everything works in concert, everything works together. Holy moly. So what you are telling us is that as the tumor grows, it's building a new microenvironment that's like best case scenario for itself. So back to my example, 
if we're back to our liquor store and you wanted to expand and you were going to build your road, so the the liquor store expansion, if you're going to grow and maybe build like a Walmart super center size liquor store, you would just kind of use your growth to clear cut all the trees and and to make it like this super cool environment that's going to make it easy, easy to build to build an even bigger store and and make it awesome where all the people are going to want to come and shop and 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 buy your beer and your wine and and you, and as you're building the roads that are coming in it's just making it easier to grow and be and do more and it's it's not the fault of the nerves the nerves are just doing what nerves do right they're as you said the nerve is just regenerating itself i mean this is this is absolutely crazy how fascinating yeah so uh yes you uh the nerves are there are just simple bystanders they um you know they're programmed to do that and uh that's what they do and it turns out that they are unwilling accomplice in the progression of the of the melanoma and uh, as we have nerves everywhere every tissue has uh, pretty much you know tons of nerves everywhere this really is um, a paradigm shift shift where um, a lot of different solid tumors could be using the same system to expand all right Yuri we're gonna get back to you in a second to find out if that's the case are all tumors doing this? Are all tumors using this really pretty simple and brilliant mechanism of the damage caused by nerve regeneration and the microenvironment built around those damaged nerves to grow and to create a really, really awesome environment for tumor growth? And then if that's the case, how can we prevent it? How can we target it? All right, Yuri, we'll get back to you in a second. All right, Kathy, in the meantime, we left you with, oh my gosh, what I just loved, which was an awesome reminder that you gave us, which is that viruses, they're just in it for themselves, <laughs> which I think we forget about, right? We, we forget about that the goal of the virus is to make more virus. The goal of the virus is not to cause tumors. So cancer is not the goal. It is just a byproduct. And I, I think that you did a great job reminding us that Epstein-Barr virus has all these goals in the process of trying to make more of itself. It's avoiding the immune system. It's just lying low. And in the odd cell, as you so elegantly presented it to us, something goes wrong. And tumors develop and we've known that for 50 years and we know and Sarah reminded us that it's something about genetics and it's something about the environment that this happens in so help us understand what what is your lab doing that is really pushing the bar here and helping us to to make a difference what are you super excited about right now so another way to look at this problem is we can study it from the aspect of the mechanism or the the basic you know mechanism behind how the presence or the continued chronic infection of Epstein-Barr virus 
can lead to DNA mutations, right? That just is a textbook version of understanding how the relationship between viruses and human cells can go awry. But another way to look at this is to think of it as an opportunity, because if EBV is causing these genetic mutations, then they're going to be more susceptible to DNA damaging agents. And the principle behind, you know, um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy is based on the idea that the cancer cell is going to be a lot more susceptible to DNA damaging agents than your normal cells with intact DNA repair um, machinery and mechanisms. And so what we are trying to do in the lab is to be able to define specifically what aspect of the DNA repair signaling um, control mechanisms or the DNA repair machinery is being interfered by um, different, different proteins expressed by Epstein-Barr virus. And by knowing that, we can use it um, in a manner, what's called synthetic lethality, where we can use that property as an Achilles heel and therefore um, you know, interfere with the compensatory mechanisms that have to be in place in order for the cell to survive any more DNA damage. So yeah, uh, in a nutshell, we're, we're trying to take advantage of the fact that these are marked by viruses that interfere with DNA repair. Uh, it's so interesting that you put it that way, that you can use the viral infection to your advantage. All right, Sarah, so similar question. So Kathy led us down a cool path of reminding us that what we're looking for is susceptibility and weakness and Achilles heel, which we can all think about as this just targeted way of finding what can we do to kill off this cancer cell? And you studied this family of proteins called RAD51. So when your lab thinks about targeting RAD51 family proteins that have mutations in cancer cells, what are you super excited about right now? How, how do you think about therapeutic options here? Yeah, so what I'm really excited about in the lab has to do with our not only just like studying these mutations, but also the way in which we're gathering all the information about what they do. Because these proteins have like lots of different friends and they do lots of different things with different friends. And so what we are doing that's really unique is that we're studying what's going on using a bunch of different applications or techniques. Um, it, we're not just like using the same technique to study um, to study all of these different um, mutations. And so I think that makes our understanding of what these mutations do really strong because we have like four or five different ways that we're studying how these mutations um, function. So I'm just really jazzed about it because we have all these different ways to look at it and the information that we get out, I think is so powerful. Excellent. So at the end of the day, because you're coming at this RAD51 family, which you <laughs> reminded us is big, lots of friends, there's lots of potential here. You're coming at it from so different, so many different, really elegant angles that at, at the end, you, the information that you have, you will feel so good about 
taking it to the next level when we began to think about therapeutic options? Is that a, a reasonable summary of kind of where you stand on this kind of precipice is what I think of? That is exactly how I would explain it. You did a great job summarizing it. All right, Yuri, you left us kind of in a, oh my gosh, I was just on, I was hanging on edge because you said, you know, here's the thing, Susanna, we have nerves everywhere. And this is a, a paradigm shift. So if you're right, and many tumors are using an ability to damage nerves and saying, hey, nerves, go out, go forth, create a great environment for me as you repair yourselves, create a great environment for me to continue to grow. What are you super excited about that observation as we think about how we might target that particular Achilles heel of cancer? Uh, so uh, probably three things. So uh, first of all, um, when we cut the nerve as a, basically remove the nerve from a skin in a mouse model, we see that melanoma, for instance, grows a lot slower. And so, and we find that the reason for that is that the, the mouse is able to instigate a much more effective immune response against melanoma if the nerve is not present. So uh, one uh, very exciting uh, opportunity we see here is to uh, significantly improve immunotherapy that's already used for patients, uh, but it's hindered by, as I said, you know, the team of players that are playing against it. Uh, but now if you are targeting the nerves, if you are actually targeting that mechanism, you could potentially really increase the efficacy of the already promising uh, immunotherapy for cancer. So that's one thing. Uh, the other opportunity is, as you mentioned, uh, nerves are everywhere. And uh, we find that not only can the nerve um, help the tumor progress when the tumor is already there, it can potentially set up fertile environment for the uh, cancer to move to when it wants to spread. So for instance, melanoma starts in the skin and it grows and grows. And at some point uh, when it becomes you know, more aggressive, it starts to spread. And what we find is that actually, if you look at the areas where it does spread, nerves are also uh, playing a critical role in setting up this fertile soil for the for the tumor cells to go to. So uh, that is potentially uh, a very important opportunity for us to address so that we can uh, start to uh, see how do we prevent cancer spread, metastatic uh, lesions. And so, and the last thing is that, you know, the nerves become, became kind of a, a pretty important player in this tumor microenvironment fairly recently. And so we are find, trying to find ways to, well, how do we therapeutically target the nerves? How do we kind of silence them and prevent them from being used by, you know, adversely by the tumor? So one exciting thing is that we have all of these therapies that have been, uh, came out over the last century for completely different purposes. They were from, uh, they were for pain, they are for neuro neuropathies, 
And so they targeted nerves in for a completely different pathology, different uh, diseases. But now we are looking into trying to repurpose those therapeutics that have already shown efficacy for other nerve-related diseases to see if they would have actually efficacy for cancer as well, either by themselves or in combination with already existing anti-cancer therapy to actually improve its efficacy. I, I love that. I love that you're thinking so so broadly and I, I mean quite frankly just in it, it just all makes sense. So you are allowing what the body can do to kind of catch up, right? Because you said that in your first example, if if nerves are so helpful to tumors and you cut the nerve, you just give the immune system a chance maybe to catch up and to do what it's supposed to do, which is to recognize and eliminate the cancer. And then the second thing you said is if, if nerves are so helpful for tumors and they're helping them to spread, well, well, maybe we could stop that. Maybe we could therapeutically target that and, and play a role in blocking metastasis. And then who knows? You're right. These observations are so novel and new that Maybe there are already drugs on the market that are, are used in studies of innervation and, and nerve therapy that, that could be used in cancer. So, ah, what a rich area to, to think about. And, and speaking of that, I mean, you guys are in different departments, but you're all at the same institute, but you've had this, you know, 30 minutes to, to listen to each other. I'd love to know if there's something that you've heard that's really been like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to continue this conversation. So Kathy, I'll start to you, start with you. What what has really excited you about what you've heard from Sarah and Yuri this morning? Yeah, I was gonna um, ask Sarah actually. So now I think it's really interesting that, you know, DNA repair as um, as a central machinery is is something that is very, very conserved amongst living organisms. And yet cancer emerged as something that it, you know, is a is a consequence of being human or mammalian. Um, I, I my I guess the root of my question is to say, um, do you use this information that you know humans have these mutation hotspots in the Rad fifty one family of proteins, but be able to study them in other mo model organisms for you know. Um, basic protein-protein interactions. But, you know, this sort of simplifies the question, is my opinion. Instead of waiting for a cancer to emerge, you could just study the machinery in a, in a model organism. Yeah, and I think that has been applied in our field for actually a long time. But what we're finding is that human cells are so much more complex and they function differently. So it would be so nice if we could just use um, other model organisms like mice or worms or flies. But we just are a little bit lacking because the proteome, all the proteins that do the jobs in our cells, in humans, they are very different. And in fact, we're still identifying proteins that function in DNA, DNA repair in our cells. So we just have a lot to learn and, um, you know, we're working on it. Yuri, I'll ask the same of you. Is there something that either Kathy or Sarah share that you're like, you know, this this was pretty cool, and and I'd love to know more. I think that the um, 
area of uh, EBV research and how that um, you know causes carcinogenesis uh, is an extremely important area, and it's an ex uh, you know very very exciting area, um, an extremely broad area. You know, EBV is all, uh, of course one example of a number of viruses that uh, cause. Uh, cause cancer, for instance, uh, you know, as I said, dermatology, uh, in, in skin, it's a very important area. For instance, Merkel cell carcinoma caused by poliomavirus discovered right here in Pitt by Dr. Chang, Dr. Moore. And uh, is there any evidence that EBV virus can cause, other than sort of head, neck, mucosal cancers, but is involved in uh, generation of uh, skin cancer, squamous cell carcinoma, for instance. Um, as you as you alluded to, Merkel cell polyomavirus is also an other pathogen that is a commensal organism or a common, I mean, a pathogen uh, on your skin, and that some people can develop Merkel cell uh, carcinoma, basically um, a, a skin cancer, right? So um, EBV is systemic that means it exists in your blood and it affects your circulating um, what's called memory b cells um, so it is associated with b cell lymphomas or cancers people have searched uh, for other virally associated cancers and here's the kicker you would think with all the toolkits that we have these days it would be easy to identify that through what's called mass sequencing efforts that the NIH and others are doing and you just have to have enough computing power. But what's what I've always said is that even though our toolkits have improved, I think the original association or the argument that a virus is associated with cancer is not um, has not changed in terms of how we prove that theory because these toolkits enable us to see a lot of data, but because viruses are designed to hide from the immune system transcriptionally, they are also expressing extremely low amounts of their genes called transcripts. And as such, in order to find these viral transcripts in human cancers is almost like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? You're looking for somewhere on the order of 0.1% of all the transcripts transcribed from genes in the whole cell. Um, and so really uh, there have been, you know, suggestions that it's associated with breast cancer, for example. It is also known to be associated with 9% of gastric carcinoma. Gastric carcinoma is a very, very important one because of its health burden. Um, it's I think one of the fourth leading uh, number in terms of number uh, human cancer incidents worldwide and gastric is a, is a big one because the other 90% of gastric carcinomas are attributed to infection by helicobacter a bacterium that exists in your in your in your stomach um, and the others that aren't attributed to helicobacter turns out to be uh, positive for Epstein-Barr virus so we continue to search but I think the new technologies help, but we need, um, you know, uh, we need to do thorough research in, in order to prove it. Just finding sequences doesn't help. Um, it only suggests, and we need to keep looking. Thank you, Kathy. I love what you ended with is that we continue to search. So I think I'm gonna 
Sarah, I'm gonna pose the next question to you. Our audience would love to know how ACS funding has impacted not only your career, I think you're at, you're at a, such an exciting stage, and then also how do you see ACS funding really moving this field forward? Yeah, this is such, this the ACS funding, you know, of my fellowship has been so transformative in so many ways. So historically, what's really awesome is that both of my female mentors, Dr. Uh, Maria Spees and Dr. Kara Bernstein, uh, have also been uh, recipients of this fellowship. It is such an honor to also have this award. And also the ACS training, the ACS uh, fellowship has allowed me to obtain training in state of the art techniques for us to attack and really understand how these mutations are playing a role in cancer. So without these tech, these new technologies that we're utilizing that I didn't get to talk to talk a, a lot about earlier, um, you know, we just wouldn't have the same understanding. So I'm just really, really thankful for the funding and opportunity uh, to really make an impact in breast and ovarian cancer research. You know, I think for our listeners who, for the most part, are not clinicians and aren't scientists, it's, it's okay that they don't understand or have a chance, although they'd love to meet you and see your lab to, to talk about your techniques, but it, it's okay that they they don't get to see everything you're doing. I think you're sharing that without ACS funding, you wouldn't have the same opportunities to really dive down deeply into these techniques and to gain this understanding. And that's exciting and motivational. And we're absolutely thrilled to have you on board and honestly can't wait, can't wait for um, to see everything that comes out of your fellowship. Um, oh, thank you so much, Susanna. <laughs> super excited. And Kathy, I'll, I'll pose the last question for you, but then I'll let Sarah and Yuri, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So Kathy, is there a message that you would like to share for our listeners um, who are cancer patients and survivors and caregivers? Uh, sure. Absolutely advocate for cancer research. Um, what needs to happen, I think, is that, um, you know, Cancer research is a long-standing fight. It doesn't happen overnight. There are fantastic examples of how ACS has supported through funding basic research um, important transformative ideas. In my opinion, what makes ACS stand out as a whole is that it enables scientists to pursue at all levels, at the training level and beyond, up to full professorship level, it enables all scientists to pursue novel research questions. And it also funds, as you can see from today's example, a range of research topics. Um, and so the relationship I have with the ACS goes beyond a sponsored project because through these podcasts and outreach um, efforts at the you know um, patient level, but we also have such type of outreach in the basic science between, you know, scientific conversations level, I feel that the ACS community as a whole is unique because it is invested in the continued success of the um, science that it sponsors in, in developing frontier science. And that is a, a niche um, area. And that niche area isn't necessarily always supported in large amounts from other 
you know, NIH or our federal funding mechanisms or state funding mechanisms where they have they have other priorities. So I think it's so important that um, the ACS continues and also the patients continue to advocate for uh, basic cancer research and 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 to and to and to just keep spreading this information. Sarah, do you have a message you'd like to add? Oh, yes, of course. I just would love to say to uh, patients, caregivers, families, that we are working hard on trying to help solve these problems for you because we all matter. Every single one of us matters, and we're, we're on it, all right? So hang in there. Thank you, Sarah. We're grateful for your efforts. Um, and Yuri, we'd love to hear from you as well. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm a scientist and a clinician, and uh, um, I see cancer patients in my clinic all the time. Cancer is really a, a global problem, um, and it needs global solutions, just like, you know, uh, teams of clinicians who treat cancer patients. Scientists also are and should be working in teams, because from you know, today's podcast, you see that cancer really needs to be approached and is approached from many different directions um, in order for us to be as successful as we can in uh, trying to curb it. And so um, I think also the we need fresh perspectives, and I think the ACS has been instrumental in um, funding young, young investigators who bring fresh, fresh perspective fresh energy, tackle some of the potentially riskier uh, questions which may potentially uh, lead to, you know, better rewards, better therapies, um, a, a more accelerated uh, progress. Um, so, um, you know, it is it is a group effort and uh, and um, uh, I also, you know, thank um, everyone for uh, attention today. Well, Kathy, Sarah, Yuri, you're right. This is a representation of the many different directions that research can take and just a great summary of the fact that many hands make what I wouldn't say is light work, but at least make the work um, easier and more approachable and certainly more fun. And I hope our listeners can hear the excitement in your voices and the love for what you do. And um, just want to say thank you. The ACS is grateful for each of you and good luck. Thanks for sharing your time with us today.